This is Matthew Dahl. Welcome to Ribcasts, the official podcast of the Chestwall Injury Society. This month, Dr. Dave Morris and I will be interviewing Dr. John Mayberry, a giant in the field of rib fixation. I trust that you will find his perspective on the history and development of rib fixation extremely interesting, as well as his advice regarding management of patients with rib nonunion. Well, thank you so much for being willing to join us today and talk uh, about some of your experience uh, with rib plating and specifically with non-union and malunion. Um, to kind of start things off, do you mind just introducing yourself and uh, telling us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'm John Mayberry, and I'm a trauma surgeon at Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego currently, and uh, I also do some on-call work at a critical access hospital in Idaho called St. Luke's Wood River in Ketchum, Idaho. I've been a trauma surgeon for a long time. I finished my um, training in Oregon in 92. That's the previous century. And um, <laughs> and then I, uh, I went on active duty in the Air Force. Um, then I had developed a good relationship with um, Dr. Rich Mullins, who was the director of trauma at Oregon Health Sciences in Oregon when I was a resident, and also Dr. Trunke, who was the chief of surgery. So when I finished my military obligation, they invited me to come back and uh, do the trauma fellowship and then stay on as a faculty member. So that's what I did. I um, was on the faculty at Oregon Health Science until 2013 and um, uh, went through the whole academic uh, promotion process, got promoted to professor, mainly uh, based on my national reputation for rib fracture repair and the research associated with that. And then um, practiced uh, uh, community trauma surgery for uh, four years about in Boise, Idaho. And then that brings us up to now since I've uh, come here to uh, San Diego and then also keeping my foot in Idaho. Uh, but um, my connection with uh, rib fracture repair came through Dr. Trunke actually, uh, back when I was a fellow. That would have been uh, starting in 1995. Uh, although Trunke had done some rib fracture repairs at Oregon uh, prior to that, um, the bulk of it started occurring about 1995 when basically Rich Mullins, the director of trauma, and Trunke uh, approached me and encouraged me to take it on as a research project. What, was the ki what kind of patients were you looking for at the time and what kind of technology were you using at the time and how has that changed uh, over the intervening years? Well, Dr. Trunke had done some um, rib fracture repair when he was uh, chief of surgery down at San Francisco General. And uh, they were using Atkins struts, which uh, in those days were used for pectus excavatum. And they were basically stainless steel plates that you circlaged around the rib with wire. So uh, when he had done 
he had done a rib fracture repair back when I was a chief resident. We were talking back in about 1990, approximately, somewhere between 1990 and 1991, 92. He had done a repair at Oregon and had switched from using um, Atkins struts uh, to uh, pelvic recon recon plates uh, made by Synthes. They're, they're still big bulky plates. And uh, the Atkins struts were stainless steel and I believe the uh, pelvic recon plates were titanium, but still just circlized with wire. So the first couple of cases that Trunky and I did together uh, when I was either a fellow or had, or had uh, become a faculty member were with these pelvic recon plates. I found them very dissatisfying and big, uh, and also they were circlaged with wire. So I talked to uh, uh, one of the ortho orthopedic surgeons, and uh, and also I talked to a plastic surgeon who was doing some uh, facial fracture repair. And um, I said, you know, what other plates could we use? And the plastic, I think it was a plastic surgeon that suggested I use some mandibular recon plates since the mandible was similar to the rib. So um, I got him to scrub with me on a case. And then I got one of the orthopedic surgeons to scrub with me on a case. And we used mandibular recon plates, again, made by Synthes, huh. uh, smaller. And, um, you know, you could... Um, uh, use uh, screws instead of wire. And I thought that was very satisfying. And um, so that's what I used for probably two, three, four years. And it would, and it was just the worst of the worst cases that we were doing, trying to expand the indications. Uh, we were just doing patients with flail chest or patients that, um, you know, had an obvious herniation or chest wall defect. Uh, uh, the worst of the worst cases is what we were doing back in those days. Okay. And were those plates titanium? Yeah, they're titanium. Yep. Okay. And then from there, it, it kind of led into development of rib specific plates. That's correct. The, um, uh, the, orthopedic surgeon that I enlisted to help me. Basically, I went to this orthopedic surgeon and I said, I don't know much about bones and how to fix bones and screws. And um, could you teach me? Could you scrub with me on some of these rib fracture cases and teach me about how to put plates on and screws and so on and so forth? I didn't know anything about locking screws or rescue screws at that time. So he's the one that taught me about locking screws and rescue screws. Now here's the interesting thing is that, and his name is Tom Ellis. Um, he's now the chief of orthopedic trauma at Ohio State. Uh, he, after scrubbing with me and using these mandibular recon plates began to get ideas about rib specific plates and he, along with one of the, um, uh, I don't know if you call him a technician or engineering technicians in the orthopedic lab there at Oregon Health Science University, his, this uh, engineering technician's name was Joel Gillard. 
So two of them uh, got to talking and came up with a rib-specific plate, which nowadays you know as the rib block. Okay. Uh, made by the company Acute Innovations now. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, so uh, I was not involved in their initial discussions, and but basically Tom Ellis got the idea uh, for rib-specific plates while he was scrubbed with me using mandibular recon plates and um because he told me this later i didn't know what was happening and then uh they actually went through the patent process and um found a company there in oregon called uh, acumed which is an orthopedic hardware company and actually went through all the negotiations with them and then once they um once they got the patent process going and the licensing process, uh, Tom Ellis approached me and said, hey, I've got this prototype and we are allowed to start putting it in patients. Would you be interested in using it and um, trying it out? And, you know, we'll see if we can get FDA approval for it. And, Absolutely. Um, I said, sure. So that's, that's how the rib lock came to be. Um, is a Tom Ellis and Joel Gillard, who uh, by that time had actually moved to Acumed. He he quit his job at Oregon Health Sciences in the orthopedic lab and became a, an employee of Acumed. <laughs> and Tom Ellis was the professor of orthopedic surgery at Oregon and chief of orthopedic trauma. And I was on the faculty at Oregon and we were the clinical evaluators, basically. Interesting. And then everyone else kind of copied the idea and jumped on, huh? Well, uh, now, um, uh, Bill Long at Emanuel, which was just across the river from Oregon Health Sciences, there's in there in Portland at Emanuel Trauma Center. Uh, he actually had already developed a rib-specific plate with uh, his orthopedic surgeon there at Emanuel. And it was already licensed to Synthes. So at the same time that Tom Ellis was developing this plate with, with Acumed, which later became Acute Innovations, uh, uh, across, just across the river, also in Portland, uh, Bill Long and his colleagues at Emanuel were developing the Synthes plate. So it all kind of, kind of came about simultaneously in some sense, or some of them. It was about this, yeah, it was about the same time because we, uh, myself and Dr. Trunky and Dr. Mullins and then Bill Long across the river to Manuel and his colleagues there. And then, um, you know, there were some surgeons in Germany, uh, Vogenreiter would be one of them who I communicated with at the time. And then, um, you know, just some scattered surgeons around the world, the surgeons in Japan, were thinking about this very issue about fixing flail chest and it was being discussed at meetings. And so there were a variety of people around the world uh, that, you know, that were talking about this. So it wasn't a completely novel idea. Uh, you know, ribs had been fixed since the fifties, uh, but it just really hadn't caught on and the products had not been developed. Now, obviously, the indications have expanded a lot from 
when you started doing this. Um, what do you think are now our best or strongest indications and how do you think that's going to change with the ongoing uh, research and expansion of this? Well, it's difficult to say because uh, the definitive study has not been done to show that the indications can be expanded. I think it's fairly clear that the bad flail chest is a valid indication depending on what else is going on with the patient. The problem is that the benefit to fixing a flail chest may not be huge in the acute setting. In other words, you know, eventually you get fibrous union of a flail chest and you're able to get the patient off the ventilator. It's just a matter of how many days you're willing to wait. Mm -hmm. So what really needs to happen is we need to know what happens to these people at six months, one year, three years down the line. And uh, I've done some studies of long-term outcomes and other folks have done the same. And we really need to uh, know exactly, number one, what happens to just your average person uh, who either has what you might call just a radiographic flail chest um, or bad rib fractures, multiple displaced rib fractures. What happens to these people? It's at not just at six months, but at one year, two years, three years. And then what you have to do is you have to have a procedure that has very little morbidity. And to do that, number one, you need rib specific plates that are reliable. And number two, you need to be able to put those plates on in a minimally invasive fashion. Mm -hmm. And number three, you need to do it early on. You need to do it early in their hospitalization so that they get some benefit early on also. Uh, it's problematic because those patients that we're talking about, these sort of pa these patients with not so bad a flail chest, I'm, I'm not talking about the worst of the worst. I'm talking about patients with moderate flail chest or just radiographic flail chest or multiple rib fractures. They will get better. You will be able to discharge them from the hospital. Uh, so finding out which patients really need it in these more expansive categories is the problem. Now that's, that's talking about the, uh, the benefits in an acute setting. Do you think rib fixation provides benefits uh, in more of a chronic setting in terms of present, preventing chronic pain and chronic disability? I do, but I don't know which patient, uh, because obviously we've all seen that patient with really bad rib fractures that doesn't get surgery and we see them back in our clinic in you know six weeks and then three months and they go back to work and then we never hear from them again mm -hmm. and they don't get chronic pain and then we see the patients that get the chronic pain and we don't know how to separate the two we don't know which patients are going to go on to chronic pain uh, we don't have the markers yet and john what what do you think is your gestalt about what's actually driving that? Is it anatomical? Is it inflammation? Are there genetic issues involved? I mean, what do you, what do you hypothesize is what's driving some of this? Who gets chronic pain? Yeah. Yeah. All of those things are proposed in the chronic pain literature. 
it's number one, it could be the person themselves. There's something different about this particular person and their genetic makeup or their psychological makeup that makes them prone to chronic pain. That's been discussed ad nauseum in the literature. Uh, there's also the way that we treat uh, patients with acute pain. Uh, opioids are apparently the worst thing to treat someone with acute pain with. And more and more we're realizing that the more opioids that we give to patients acutely, more likely they are to become desensitized to them. There's this thing called central desensitization where uh, the opioids potentially make the patient more prone to chronic pain, uh, you know, six months or a year later. And then uh, um, if we could use things like the uh, anti-inflammatory medications and the um, medications like gabapentin and Lyrica, and then and you also use uh, local anesthetics like lidocaine initially and and minimize the opioids you know we might prevent a lot of these patients from getting chronic pain do you have any um hesitancy to use NSAIDs in these patients uh because of their proposed effects on bone healing it's very minor the if you talk to uh any uh, reasonable orthopedic surgeon, they will agree with you that it's minor. The acute effect that using Motrin or Toradol for three or four or five or six days or 10 days has on the bone healing is minimal. Uh, it's, it's, it's really not, in my opinion, an issue acutely. Yeah, it seems a far cry from rat femurs to the point today where we're not treating anybody with those medications. That seems a little stretched to me. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think that's gone overboard. Uh, you know, and then also people say that NSAIDs cause bleeding. Uh, you know, that is a very minor effect too. I've, I've heard people say, no, we can't give you NSAIDs because you might bleed because you've just had a trauma. Well, that I don't think that that's really a major effect either. But... Uh, so Obviously, the more injury that the patient has, the more likely they're going to get chronic pain. The more displaced the fractures are, the more likely they're going to be a chronic problem. But again, I mean, uh, uh, we've all seen patients that have had those very severe chest wall injuries with displaced fractures who don't get chronic pain also. Yeah, I almost have a personal pet theory. There are those patients you take to the OR to fix their ribs. And when you get there, you find that there's the neurovascular bundle or muscle or whatever that's been entrapped up into the actual fracture. And I kind of wonder if that impingement maybe drives some of the pain and maybe those are the patients who end up with chronic pain as well. And maybe malmoving because the bone edges are, are separated. But oh, absolutely. Um you know, the chest wall is highly innervated and it's, and it's not just the intercostal nerve. The intercostal nerve itself can be injured, but that intercostal nerve, uh, there's some interesting um, neuroanatomic studies that I've looked at and uh, gosh, it's been 10 years. So I'm just pulling back on my memory, but the thousands upon thousands of little tendrils that come off of the intercostal nerve and innervate uh, the intercostal musculature you know, to help the chest wall function, which is very complex. And then 
and then these sensory nerves that are associated with these motor nerves, there's thousands upon thousands of them. Uh, I, I, don't, I mean, you know what I'm saying is that right. it's, it's very dense. Uh-huh. And each one of these little neurons gets unhappy because they've been crushed or smashed or uh, torn. Uh, I mean, it's a wonder that it's it's a wonder that we all don't all get chronic pain uh, from any injury. All these little thousands and millions of little neurons. Well, that might uh, might be a really nice uh, transition to talking uh, about rib non-union and rib malunion, which uh, I'm told is kind of one of your areas of expertise and one of the areas where you really uh, lead the field. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your approach to those? Well, I can tell you about the first patient that I did with uh, a non-union, uh, and it's actually published. It's in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, published around 2000, 2001, 2002. The authors are myself, Dr. Trunkey, and uh, Matt Slater, who was our trauma fellow at the time. And we had a patient uh, that came to our trauma clinic six years after um, having had a, um, a flail chest. He, he was a rancher out in Eastern Oregon, got bucked off his horse. I, if I'm not mistaken, he told me that a mountain lion, his horse saw a mountain lion and bucked him off his horse. He landed on his left chest wall and basically probably had a flail chest and um, it was winter time, he said, and there's no way that he could even get out of his ranch to get into the hospital and have it checked out. So he basically stayed at home and nursed himself, he and his wife. They lived very remotely. And uh, then, you know, spring came and there was work to be done, and he just kept on working. And then it was actually six years before he apparently found enough help or he got old enough that his son was able to help him or his hired hands were able to do the work. Six years later, he shows up to clinic to try and get this problem solved. And (laughs) he had a non-union, but basically I think ribs number two, three, four. Yeah. I think basically his, he had pushed in these fractures and they were very displaced and uh, I talked to Dr. Trunky about it, and he said, let's do it. And so that was the very first non-union that I did, and maybe doc- that Dr. Trunky did. And we went in there, and, that- and we were still using the pelvic recon plates at that time. And we went in there and fixed him, and he was happy. Uh, you know, he came back to clinic one time, and then and he frankly told me uh, that he didn't even want to come back to that appointment. Uh, too much trouble for him to get off his ranch and i called him later i think i called him i'd have to look in the paper i put it in the paper that we published when i called him and got a verbal report from him at some point after i can't remember six months or a year or 18 months i called him and he said nope i'm doing fine don't worry about me (laughs) yeah it's too tough for his own good yeah and then if you look in the literature around that same time, we weren't the only ones that were publishing on non-union. There was two or three other case reports, including J. David Richardson uh, of Louisville, 
uh, published, uh, I think, more than one patient with a non-union. And then you'll, you'll see around the early 2000s up until 2010, there's a whole ha handful of case series. Uh, yeah, so that's how I got into it. Interesting. So when you approach these patients, um, what are some of the technical tips and tricks for someone who hasn't done as many of these to approach these patients as opposed to your acute rib fractures? Well, first of all, they're much more difficult. So you, I would not recommend that you do non-unions as your first handful of um, rib fixation cases. Uh, the ribs are already set into place and uh, they're displaced and they want to stay displaced. They do not want to go back into apposition. So they're very difficult to put back in apposition and you really have to get good fixation. The fixation is under a lot more tension. So that's number one. Uh, number two is initially what we did was we thought that we had to resect that non-union and get really good bone on both sides. So we were rather aggressive with resecting this uh, non-union, which if, if you want to know what a non-union looks like, it, have you ever been out in the woods and saw a tree branch that got broken, but then was able to um, heal itself and you get a big sure. knot? Mm -hmm. And if what you, what you ought to do sometime, and I actually did this, I found a, a knot out in the woods and I took a saw and I cut it open. And it's essentially the same thing as what you're going to see in a non-union. It's swirls of, of uh, in the case of a, a tree, it's obviously, uh, you know, tree matter. It's swirls of disorganized tissue and some empty spaces. Even in, a, even in a tree knot, you know, sometimes when you cut open a tree knot, you'll see empty spaces with debris inside of it. Same thing with a non-union. So we thought that we had to resect that whole thing, which would leave a gap of sometimes as big as two to three centimeters. And then we would put a plate over it. But what we have found as the years have gone by that you don't actually have to resect the whole non-union. You can actually just resect the callous tissue and leave the bone. Even though it's not very good bone, leave the bone, just resect the callous tissue, the soft tissue, leave the bone, you can resect, if the bone looks completely, you know, dead, obviously resect it. And then we would, then what I'm doing now is I'm doing bone graft. So I, I, I take that same bone from adjacent rib. I don't take it from the iliac crest. I either take it from the area where the fracture is, or I take it from bone nearby. And I just get little bits and pieces of bone. I mix it with DBX, which is like a bone putty and uh, put it into those interstices of the non-union. You know, use whatever plate you want to use. Obviously, I have a predilection to use the rib lock plate because I think it provides the best fixation. But, but they're, they're all going to be fine. And then just hold it in place until it heals again. And this is what orthopedic surgeons do with non-unions. Uh, orthopedic surgeons don't mm -hmm. chunk out the non-union and leave an empty space. So we shouldn't do it for ribs either. What is the discussion you have with these patients with non-union and malunion segments before surgery, setting them up for their expectations uh, during surgery and then during their recovery period? Well, first of all, I tell them I can't guarantee that I'm going to help them. I can give them a 99% assurance that I'm not going to make them worse. 
I've never had a patient that, uh, you know, said that um, they were worse after the surgery. Although I have heard uh, from other surgeons uh, that they have operated on patients and have made things worse. So, um, but I'm relatively cautious, uh, especially as the years have gone by in how aggressive I am about uh, trying to deal with every little problem that they have with their ribs. So I'm not as aggressive as I used to be. I'm a more cautious as far as how much resection I do, how much surgery I do, how much plating I do. So I can pretty much give them a guarantee or close to a guarantee I'm not going to make them worse. But I can't guarantee I'm going to make them better. Mm-hmm. The, pr- the problem with chronic pain is it's chronic pain. It's settled in. And... Um, as every surgeon that operates on a patient with chronic pain will tell you, that's, you know, you're, you're never going to completely get rid of it. So I tell them that up front. So they have to accept that. Most of them accept it because they're miserable. Yeah. And if, if you can give them a chance to get better, they're going to take it. So, uh, and then I tell them uh, they're definitely going to get worse before they get better. So I'm going to do the surgery on them. Um, although I must say a lot of them say that they're immediately better. In fact, I would say the majority of people tell me like before they go home from the hospital that they're immediately better, that they can tell a difference. Really? But that but that doesn't hold up for over the next several weeks. Over the next several weeks, they often will say they're worse or the same. And then I tell them and, you know, I'll see them back in clinic and they'll be a little bit depressed. Um, but I'll say, remember, I told you that Uh, And and that's another thing I tell them before the surgery that don't expect to be better immediately expect it to take months and up to six months. Mm -hmm. So I'll just tell them again. Remember, I told you before the surgery that you may not be better right away and it could take up to six months to get the full effect or longer. So then I just go through that process with them. I uh, start sending them to physical therapy at some point as soon as I'm happy with the plates uh, being settled in and get them active, uh, get them on a work hardening program and take them step by step, tell them to take it real slow. Uh, It seems inevitable that almost every patient will will at some point over that first two or three months try to do too much Hmm. because, because they're excited. You know, they're excited about trying out their new chest. <laughs> and uh, and so they, they get out there and do something they shouldn't do or they accidentally do something. Um, I had one gal that was a motorcyclist who couldn't wait to get back on her motorcycle. So she did that. And the next thing you know, she's pulling into a parking lot and slips the, um, um, you know, slips her uh, motorcycle down and okay. you know, has a little little bit of a crash you know, uh, uh, you know, like within two or three months after I worked on her chest wall. And so all of a sudden the pain is back. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I say, well, you, you basically have to start over because you've now you've irritated the nerves again. And um, I explained it to them that those nerves are irritated and they need to settle down and you need to give them time to settle down. So, but it, inevitably, even if they have some sort of episode where you know, they wrench it or uh, um, re-injure it uh, or stretch it in some way. Uh, you know, if they just let it settle down and take some ibuprofen, they'll get through it and they'll get back on track again. 
Now, you mentioned a work hardening program. What's entailed with that? Well, uh, the physical therapists uh, uh, in almost every physical therapy department, whether outpatient or inpatient, uh, will have a work hardening program. Uh, and it depends on what uh, the patient does. Uh, they'll tailor it to what the patient's uh, work is and what the patient's work goals are. And they try and get them to mimic uh, the sort of actions that they would be normally taking at work. And they do it at first there in the clinic, and then they have them work on it at home. Uh, it's, it's a well-known thing. Um, I don't know exactly all the details on it, but, but the physical therapists are very familiar with it. Okay. Just with the goal being to get them back to what's functional for them. Exactly. Nice. Try and mimic the things they're going to be doing. And I think also the, the phrase hardening refers to the fact that the patient needs to accept the fact that they're going to have pain and they have to learn how to work with the pain. So that I think there's some psychology involved as well. What is the role for narcotics during their recovery from your, uh, your operation? I try and minimize it as much as possible. Uh, and in fact, a lot of these patients have given up on narcotics, which that's, that's the ideal patient. The ideal patient is the one who's actually given up on narcotics mm -hmm. by the time they come and see you because they've tried them and they don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's, it's, it's actually not unusual that the patient comes to me with severe chronic pain, but they are actually not on narcotics at all. And, and that's wonderful. And then I'll, of course, during the acute recovery period, they get narcotics just like anyone else will, but I get them off them as soon as possible or down to minimal doses as soon as possible. Uh, they usually understand that by that point because they've been to chronic pain specialists by that point, and they understand that narcotics actually don't really help in the long run. Um, in fact, if a patient doesn't understand that, then that makes me a little nervous about whether I can really help them or not. Mm -hmm. Now, does it happen that you get patients referred to you for uh, ongoing chest wall pain who don't have a non-union or malunion? Absolutely, yeah. Um, maybe at least half of my referrals are people that I don't have anything I can do. There's, there's no anatomic defect that I can find. They definitely have something wrong and they've had some kind of trauma, but, but nothing that I can do surgically. Do you have any theories about those patients or about things that we're going to find in the future to help those patients? I think the chest wall is very sensitive. Uh, I mean, if you think about the function of the chest wall and the, the three layers of the intercostal muscles and the extremely dense innervation, both sensory and motor, and the complexity of the motion, and the fact that you really can't put your chest wall to rest, uh, like you would an extremity, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it shouldn't surprise us that you could get a pain syndrome just from damage to the chest wall where there's not an actual fracture. Mm -hmm. And it, could, it can be diffuse, you know, it, it may not be in one specific location. I've had it where, you know, the whole posterior lateral part of somebody's chest wall they have chronic pain and there's no specific injury there. You'll see nothing on MRI, um, but they're definitely complaining bitterly of chronic pain and they've definitely had a trauma in that area. 
you know, what what can we do to help them? Uh, again, it's it's chronic pain management. It's work hardening, getting them off narcotics, using the uh, gabapentin and um, Lyrica type medications, using lidocaine patches, using anti-inflammatories, uh, biofeedback. I mean, use acupuncture. I've actually referred patients for acupuncture or recommended that they at least try it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there with, on chronic pain and more coming all the time. Yeah. Now, you, you had mentioned to me before that um, you frequently use absorbable plates. Who do you think uh, are the patients who we should be considering absorbable plates for? Yeah, I use them anteriorly. So I, I kind of use them as a replacement for cartilage and um, really thin bone anteriorly that could never accept a plate. So uh, because basically the absorbable plates don't have enough strength to, to really fixate a posterior lateral rib fracture. Um, that's been my experience. And then experience with the Australian surgeon, Dr. Marasco, uh, she's parroted the same thing with me. We've talked, she's had the same experience. So I use them anteriorly. I'll go a little bit lateral if the patient has really small ribs or like, uh, especially down 10, 11, Mm -hmm. uh, down in that area. I use them for cartilage dislocations. I use them to bridge that gap between the sternum and the, and the actual rib, which is mm-hmm. all cartilage in there. Mm-hmm. I'll use them as a sandwich. Uh, in other words, I'll put a, a, a plate behind the cartilage fracture and one in front of it. Oh, really? And then sandwich it in place. Um, you know, sort of lash it. Uh, and um, I have used them in non-unions, although I think probably their role in non-unions is pretty limited, mm-hmm. unless it's something really anterior. Okay. You, you certainly can get a cartilage non-union. Um, the, the problem with cartilage non-unions is that even if you plate them, they're not going to ever heal. They just don't heal. There's, there's not enough blood supply or activity mm. Uh and in those cases, what I do instead of, I will put an absorbable plate, but I'll put a little piece of Marlex mesh um, and lay it over the top of the cartilage non-union and then put a absorbable plate behind and an absorbable plate in front and lash it. Okay. And that, that does work because cause the Marlex provides enough stiffness. Okay. What's something that you, look, that you hope that we find out or that you look forward to learning about uh, with regards to chest wall management in the years to come? I think that the taxonomy project is probably the most important thing that the chest wall injury society is doing right now, where we're really trying to describe the different kinds of fractures, the locations, and then separating out what would be, you know, what, what interventions would work the best for the different kinds of injuries instead of a one size fits all really tailoring our approach to where the injury is, how bad the injury is, how much displacement there is, how much destruction, surrounding destruction. And uh, I know that the um, uh, the Chest Wall Injury Society, I mean, I, I think there's a whole committee on taxonomy. And I know people are working on that. And that may, you know, that could take 10 years because we, what we need, basically what we need to do is we need to accrue patients in each of these. Well, we need to figure out what the categories are, 
all the different categories. And then we need to get a bunch of patients inside each category and, and follow them yeah. and people get experience. Yeah. That's a big undertaking. Yep. But you think that the way that we treat different locations of eventually the way that we treat rib fractures at different locations will be different. I think it will. Yeah. And, and I think uh, you can't just assume that because a rib is fractured, that putting a plate on it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might, de- it's going to depend on the location. It's going to depend on how thick the rib is. It's going to depend on the age of the patient. Obviously elderly patients don't heal ribs as well, but their ribs, uh, they're not as robust. They don't hold a plate. So uh, yeah, all, all of those factors are going to have to be taken into account. Yeah. I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, how that develops. Yeah. Well, thank you. We, uh, we really appreciate your time here. And I um, hopefully that this information is interesting to everyone approaching this really tough problem of rib non-union and malunion. Yes. You're very welcome. I appreciate you asking. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Ribcasts. We hope that you have found it interesting and helpful, whether you are new to management of chest trauma or have been doing so for many years. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. John Mayberry, for his time. I would also like to thank Dr. Dave Morris for helping moderate this episode, and Dr. Tom White for helping plan this episode. Thanks to the Education Committee for the Chesswall Injury Society. Thank you also to Sarah Ann Whitbeck, without whose work this project would be impossible. Finally, thank you to the musical group, Ask Again, who provided our music for this episode. 